Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, I'm Anoush. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. On this podcast, we discuss... Boris Johnson's tour of the Union. Our migration stories. And you ask us... Could Boris Johnson lose his seat in Uxbridge? You better not scream, you better not shout. Boris Johnson is coming to town on his tour of the... The Union. The Union. Um, The just about United (laughs) Union. (laughs) Yeah, so he's visited... Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Predictably, of course, he had a fairly hostile reception from both the first ministers he met and actually on the streets of Edinburgh, which is kind of, we've got a slight disadvantage that we are doing this before the Brecon and Radnorshire by-election, before the Brecon and Radnorshire by-election for all of our listeners as well. But the slight witness is we kind of know, don't we, that whatever happens, Johnson will, the pact of Johnson, as it were, is... They will become less popular in Scotland, and they hope that they will become more popular in Wales. Because it is in microcosm, the you lose some Remainers, you hopefully get more than enough Leavers to make up for it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the calculations. So we'll, I mean, I don't know how much you can read into the by-election result, considering Boris Johnson hasn't been Prime Minister for very long, but he is enjoying his honeymoon period. So however well or badly the Conservatives do, I think it's worth factoring in that he's could drop a few points just from the fact that he's had a few points of a bounce simply by virtue of being a a new prime minister in Downing Street. Theresa May also had a honeymoon period. So I think, you know, reading that result with a pinch of salt would be the best thing. This tour of the union, it's been really interesting because while he's been talking up the prospects of no deal, he's now going to all of the places where no deal would be, you know, really unpopular and catastrophic. So how he's holding those two things together in these private meetings is a mystery. So, yeah, I was talking to a senior Conservative and the way they put it, which I think is absolutely right, is um, the slight weirdness they said is they said all of these visits are artificial in terms of the impression that we get from them because... Most of the protesters have come up for the day. So that doesn't give you an idea of what the local reaction is. But the excited selfies are because he's a famous person from the telly. It's not that every person who takes a selfie with Boris Johnson, when those people put it on Facebook, not all of them are going to put like, great to meet this man who's going to save the union and save our country and get us out of the EU. Some of them will put, God, I can't believe I met that 
Egypt off the TV. Look, there's a photo of me in the Egypt off the TV. Yeah, give um, me 45 likes on my Instagram. Yeah. Because it's funny. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And also, even when you go to places where the Labour Party worries about Boris Johnson's star quality, you know, including places in London, including his own constituency, everyone knows his name. That's seen as a threat because, for example, the candidate running against him on his home turf it does not have name recognition. But the fact that everyone knows his name does not translate into popularity. In fact, it can translate very easily into notoriety. Yeah, I mean, I think whenever the the polls look bad, you know, people in the Labour Party will kind of go, oh, well, look what we did last time. Yeah. One of the reasons why I am dubious that they can recreate those dynamics is last time most people didn't know very much about Jeremy Corbyn. They knew that Labour had a leader who had changed and was different before and who had been given a a bit of a mullering in the press, Mm. but they did not have a particularly developed opinion of him. I think it's much harder to shift opinions about someone who has been in the public eye for a lot longer, who people feel they know. And I think that is doubly true for for Boris Johnson. I promise that I'm not going to become the, hmm, maybe have you considered electing Sajid Javid section of the podcast every week. But I think, to me at least, I look at polls showing that they have, you know, basically we've had polls from three, four pollsters now since the, the handover. The regular YouGov ones, Opinion, Comrades and Delta Poll, all basically showing the Conservative Party getting back up above 30%, 31, 32, largely at the expense of the Brexit Party, losing some additional votes to the Liberal Democrats and Labour basically staying Mm. uh, where they are. But just as with Corbyn, people know who Boris Johnson is. I don't think that there is a chunk of people who are not saying they will vote for the Conservative Party now who won't. Now, of course, I do also, you know, Polls are polls, and I think they probably are better at telling us about change rather than levels. But yeah, I would kind of agree that I don't think that his public profile is that big of a deal. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a big, big of an asset. Yeah, and another problem that probably could be even more pressing for him is that his prime ministership, his premiership, has coincided with the pound falling due to the prospect of a no-deal Brexit. So how much could that, ex- that, that affect him in, in the sort of medium term or longer term? Because as people are buying their holiday money now, they're going to associate that money that they're losing with this new regime that we've suddenly got. It's kind of a bit like the sort of, the you know, what happens if there's a no-deal Brexit. Mm. I, I don't think it necessarily people go, oh, this is because we're having a no-deal Brexit, this is because of the change of government. I don't necessarily think for a lot of people that association is as direct yeah. as that. But it just does mean it's just like, oh, I'm feeling more poor as a result of my holiday than I was, or if I can't afford to take a holiday abroad once the fall in the bright value of the pound works its way through the economy yeah, and starts yeah. to be felt in shops, then I think it's quite striking, right? And the last election, going into it, one of the things people said is no government has ever not lost seats if it's gone to the country where in real terms wages are falling. Mm. And because of what's happened to the pound, real terms wages are falling. But this government looks like it's not going to do that. And then lo and behold, I don't think it was the only reason. and Maybe it Maybe it wasn't a reason, but it would deeply worry me if I were in CCHQ or Downing Street looking at a situation where whatever happens, you're probably going to have to go to the country fairly soon. Whether Parliament stops you doing Brexit or simply because you do Brexit in a way Parliament doesn't like or because you want to be able to keep any of your other promises on tax and spend. And my assumption, and I could be completely wrong, I'd be really interested to know what you think about this one, is just that if I feel poorer because my money goes less far... That makes it easier for the Labour Party to do the... There are a lot of opinions about Brexit out there, guys, but can't we all agree that we're feeling a bit broke and the public realm looks a bit rubbish? 
And I just feel it's easier to prosecute that argument if I am feeling a bit broke. Yeah, I think you're right. There's a bigger vulnerability in terms of Labour's message getting through to people. It doesn't mean that people will necessarily think, you know, I don't have as much money for my weekly shop anymore. I'm definitely going to vote Jeremy Corbyn because it's all Boris Johnson's fault. They might not make that direct link like you were saying. But when the Labour candidate comes knocking on their door and saying, yeah, but, you know, don't you feel like you haven't had a pay rise for this amount of time? You know, don't you feel like you can't afford as much, you know, stuff for your kids, etc., etc." That might chime with people more than it necessarily would if real terms wages were going up and they hadn't been stagnating for such a long time as well. The only way I suppose that the Conservatives will think that they can tackle that problem is is with this thing that Boris Johnson is doing where he's actually going to spend some money on public services, which we haven't had for nearly a decade of austerity. Again, I think that's probably more of a benefit benefit to the Labour Party than the Conservative Party at this point, because whatever the Conservatives promise in terms of spending, the Labour Party are promising to spend more. So it's sort of, you know, for a shadow Chancellor who's trying to, um, who's trying to make sure that all of their spending pledges are costed, that just gives them more leeway if the Conservatives are spending more of their budget on hospitals, for example. I mean, I also think a lot of the things that they are doing are the things that I think would have made sense to do if Boris Johnson had won the 2016 Conservative leadership election. But, of course, he didn't. Mm. I essentially do sort of take the view that people trust... The, they see Labour, Labour as the party of, of public services. Labour tends to have a lead on whether or not it's more trusted to run those mm. than the opposition, with the brief exception of when Paddy Ashdown sort of made the Liberal Democrats the party of education and basically Labour led on every issue over the Tories and led on the Lib Dems on every issue, other issue other than education, which Paddy Ashdown had successfully made his thing. But I think they can neutralise them if, when someone goes our schools are in a terrible state, people go, that's not true. But it takes a while for public spending to be felt, right? Mm. Like, so Indra wrote that very good piece this week for us about the schools which are closing early on Fridays. Yes. Well, the, the gap between Sajid Javid standing up and going, I'm going to increase per-pupil funding, and the letter going out going that school is now open for regular hours on Friday again, is not instantaneous. Exactly. And you can see that in the police officer recruitment as well. That's going to take at least three years. When are we expecting an election, you know, potentially before October? I can see it working out two ways. Either you have an election where you go, we look, we know there's these problems, but we've done a variety of things in the comprehensive spending review to to fix them. And actually, wouldn't you prefer to talk about Brexit and national security? Possible. Equally, what happens is, is you have this situation where if you're a government minister, you have this sort of, you end up in the loser's corner on TV where you have to kind of go, but we have increased the amount by a record expense. And the presenter's going, but why is this local school still shut then? And you just look like a Marie Antoinette figure. Yeah. <laughs> and I, we can't know until an election is actually happening which one of those dynamics will play out, right? They're both plausible, but of course one of them has quite a big downside consequence for the Conservative Party. Yeah, exactly. And also, if they do want to talk about upping spending, then they have to own that. They have to accept that that's going to be part of their narrative going into a next election. And that's really difficult for them. For the example that you just gave, you know, none of this money is actually manifesting itself at the moment and it takes a while to have an effect. But also, in terms of the Conservatives that don't want their party to be just spending money on public services that they don't think that their party can afford. You know, there are there are Conservatives who genuinely believe that austerity was the right path and, and you know, don't like the idea that 
just before an election you can start spending money on everything. The fascinating thing is, from a, in terms of like the personal things that the people around this cabinet literally believe, mm. this is a more economically liberal government yeah. than the one before it or the one that David Cameron led. In terms of the actual fiscal policies it is talking about doing, it is very much not in that place. Yeah, I think kind of in an odd way, the, the fear I would have in their shoes is that this government might end up like Zach Goldsmith, right? Now, Zach Goldsmith being appointed to be a minister at DEFRA and a minister of DFID is the kind of thing, in terms of the things he believes and says and has done and the positions he's advocated on those issues, is something which, if any other Conservative holding those positions had taken those jobs, you know, almost every NGO would be saying something, you know, not, you know, I'm not saying they'd be bringing out the ticker tape, but they'd be going, oh, that is a good, positive, you know, and we've got someone who cares about climate change and believes in the 0.7a target. Yeah. But because it's that goldsmith, a lot of people, you know, both in their internal messaging and outside, basically gone, well, it's good that he agrees with us on that because of the halitosis of him being introduced to so many people as someone fighting a dog whistle or perhaps yeah. loud hailer campaign against, <laughs> against Sadiq Khan. However, the, the group of people who absolutely do believe in Zach Goldsmith's position and credibility on those issues are farmers who are opposed to what I would see as his very correct opinions on biodiversity, excessive mm. use of glyphosate, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the fear is, right, is the problem of Theresa May is that she ended up in this weird thing where she couldn't quite do well enough in taking well she fell significantly short of doing well enough in labor seats to make up for the seats and she was losing over the other side of her coalition the risk here is if you just end up with like the policy agenda of zach goldsmith but the people who like that policy agenda don't thank you because you're zach goldsmith slash boris johnson slash dominic Raab. but you don't get all of the votes of the people who are aligned with those politics because you're not actually doing those politics yeah Yeah, exactly. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So, Anoush, in this week's Summer Double, you have written about your trip to Ellis Island and seeing a familiar piece of graffiti. It's a very good piece, and I strongly urge people to read it. But, yeah, tell us a bit about it. Okay, well, at the end of last year, I went on a holiday to New York, and it was sort of pouring with rain every single day. And you know when you're on a city break and all you do is walk around? If it's raining in that scenario, it can be really tiresome. So I very nearly didn't go to Ellis Island because it's you have to queue with loads of tourists wearing ponchos and you have to go on a ferry and it's really unpleasant. And um, on the ferry, there was this there was this father on the ferry who was getting dive-bombed by seagulls and all he was doing was trying to eat a hot dog. And it was just like, this is really depressing. Why are we doing it? But actually, it turns out that when we got there, and so for people who don't know, Ellis Island is where the immigrants would arrive to be processed before arriving in America. It was just really fantastic because we were walking around and they've kept some of the original graffiti of the migrants who were waiting for their applications to be processed. And the first piece of graffiti that I saw, I was like, oh, cool. You know, they've got it's this old stone with a big plastic sort of protection thing over it. And I was like, I really recognise that writing. 
And it was a message in Armenian, which was just like the chances of that being one of the very few pieces of graffiti that survived and it being in not only Armenian, but Western Armenian, which is an endangered language and happens to be the language that I grew up speaking as bilingual. The chances were so, you know, second to none. So it was just really, it was a great moment. So I researched this and it turns out to have been a message probably from a shoemaker who had travelled from the Armenian lands in what's now modern day Turkey which is where my family originated from. And he'd written this message in Armenian. He'd drawn a little pomegranate tree because pomegranate is the fruit of Armenia and a little bird. And um, he'd just written this this message saying about how fantastic it was that he could travel to, to the US. And it just sort of gave me chills because it was my, my family migrated from Armenia, from those lands to Lebanon. And then eventually my dad had to flee Lebanon during the civil war to he well he first made it to Cyprus on a on a boat carrying watermelons and then he made it to the UK after that and and his siblings went went to go and live in America so I felt that it really chimed with my migration story even though I was born in London yeah you've written a lot about you know the importance of the Armenian language to you and to Armenian so it has 28 letters yeah um two of which were added on later yeah, um, actually, actually, I think 28 letters was the original and right. then there were two added on later. Right. I think that's right. My Armenian teachers, if any of them are listening, will definitely tell me if I've got this wrong. So it came to its scholar in a dream and he wrote down the letters. And actually, we always used to laugh in Armenian school because they told us this story and, that, you know, they're very reverent about the man who 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 came up with the alphabet but then actually they had to add two other letters on afterwards because because the the alphabet that came to him in a dream didn't cover all of the ridiculous sounds that you have to be able to make to speak Armenian so the alphabet it's a bit like so you sing a song for the alphabet like you do with the ABC so it's a bit like adding and YZ at the end really awkwardly with no tune (laughs) I mean how how do you think that um being from a scattered diaspora that has, you know, faced multiple attempts to get rid of it has kind of... Do you think it shapes your outlook today? I think it does, yeah. So, you know, for those of you who don't know Armenia's history, it is it is one of persecution. So not only have they been in multiple empires, like the Russian Empire, Soviet Union, Ottoman Empire, Iranian control. They've also... There was also a genocide during the First World War as well to try and wipe out the Armenian population. So it does make me very, very alert to the kind of modern anti-Semitism that we've seen a lot of recently and and makes me think, you know, that kind of complacency can lead to to, you know, a certain race of people being demonized. So I look at a lot of the stuff that's happening, you know, in terms of not only anti-Semitism, but also the racism that Donald Trump has voiced, for example, like send send her home, send her back. It makes me look at that stuff in quite a personal light because although I'm not a migrant myself, you know, from being a second generation, you can see how easy it is for people to turn against you, particularly if you're sort of a stranger in a new land like my my Armenian family in Lebanon, you know, all of my dad and his siblings had to leave. So, I mean, not because they're Armenian, but because there was was, um, a civil war there. So, you know, the idea of upheaval being around the corner is something that I'm quite alert to and you know any racism that can can spark that is should be sort of condemned full-throatedly yeah I know exactly what you mean and I think the phrase that I always think of is the thing that the novelist Linda Grant once wrote which is you know being Jewish does teach you that there isn't always a happy ending Mm. Uh, and I feel I do have kind of you know 
you know, even though, you know, very few people in my family who are alive are observant in any meaningful sense. And obviously my mother in a very active sense is, is not Jewish anymore. But mm-hmm. um, I think that I do have that kind of slight sense of, I mean, paranoia or memory that is just like things can get really bad really quickly. I'm, you know, like... I was born here. My mum was born here, but, you know, my grandmother did have to flee here heavily pregnant because of politics and political upheaval, which is why whenever kind of people go like, I'm sure it will be fine or things always work out in the end. It's just like, it's also one of those things where it's just like, well, what what is the end? Like, I mean, like, you could argue, you could say, well, apartheid worked out in the end. <laughs> but, you know, it didn't work out in the end for the grandfather of mine who, like, died in his 50s because he had was a second class citizen had like yeah like, i'm not remotely you know belittling the achievement of having multiracial multi-party democracy in south africa but the end is 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 a move you know like world war 2 worked out fine in the end <laughs> uh but you know there are an awful lot of spots in you know well i realize we don't actually have a family bible for obvious reasons but there are an awful <laughs> lots of you know and you don't really have a it's not like there's a sort of back bit of the scroll. But, you know, there are an awful lot of bits of my family for whom the Second World War did not work out fine in the end. Yeah. And, you know, when people kind of like, you see it a lot with the kind of, then even people who get it on Labour anti-Semitism, lots of them don't get it on conservative Islamophobia because they kind of will basically kind of go like, well, this problem isn't as bad as this one. It's just like, well, actually parking for a moment the fact that I'm not wholly sold on that thesis. But even if you're not, like, well, that problem can become that problem. Yeah. And it's kind of where you're like, oh, well, you know, so 60% of them have some Islamophobic attitudes. What do you expect? Yeah, yeah. What do you want us to do about it? And it's just like... Everything you can. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that feels in that situation could get quite bad quite quickly. Yeah, I really agree with you. That complacency, well, it was all right in the end. There's also a complacency like, don't be over the top. You know, yeah. we're not going to have a Holocaust here or whatever. So there was that interview that Margaret Hodge gave that, that yeah. everyone got so cross about where she said that, you know, she'd, she was thinking of packing her bags. I think that's what yeah. she said. She said something like that. Or she, it reminded her of when her father used to say, make sure you have a bag packed. And you wrote a really moving piece about that, saying... There's nothing over the top about the mindset of sort of diaspora communities who whose ancestors have been made to flee thinking the worst. Yeah. There's absolutely no reason not to think the worst. I mean, this is the terrifying thing. You know, for my family living in Armenia before the genocide, they were living a normal life among yeah. people of different races and different religions. You know, there's a point where normal becomes not normal. And that's beyond the point of no return. So as soon as we have, you know, like significant groups of people who are Islamophobic or anti-Semitic, we've gone beyond the point of normality. It's no longer okay to be complacent. Yeah. time for a section we like to call you ask us indeed and this question is from alan mcglennon if a unified candidate is fielded in uxbridge what are the chances of them unseating boris johnson at the next general election and what happens if the conservatives can still cobble together a majority in that instance great a unified candidate does that mean a remain candidate what, what well, I think it can mean, mean it can mean anything. Right. I mean, I think one of the interesting questions is what would this unified candidate in practice mean? Well, they would have to be a Remain. Uh, yeah, I think one... So one of the things which is, is quite important to remember whenever you start talking about unified candidates is 
So I guess if I describe the, you, you've sort of been there, you've spoken yeah. to the candidate. If I basically kind of do the like, well, look, here's what you would probably, the boxes you'd have to tick to get this. And then you can tell me whether or not you think this yeah. series of boxes would, would successfully. Okay. The Liberal Democrats and the Greens are genuinely Democratic parties run at a local level, right? Which is why, yeah, one of the reasons why MPs don't defect to the Liberal Democrats is that it's not only is it hard to win your seat, it's impossible for the leadership of the Liberal Democrats to guarantee that your local party won't go, or oh, we don't like them. Yeah, like Chuck Ramuna's defection in Streatham was facilitated by the willingness of the parliamentary candidate for the Liberal Democrats in Streatham to stand down in his favour and of the local party to accept that. Mm. If either of them had gone, no, there's no button and Vince Cable can press, or now Joe Swinson can press, to force them to, to do it. Similarly with the, the Greens, when the Liberal Democrats and Greens uh, have cooperated on seat packs. Yeah, I remember a senior Liberal Democrat joking to me, they said, oh God, I thought I had to break off every five minutes to go and hold a vote somewhere before I could sign something off. But, but, they, were <laughs> like, but they really do take it to another level. So, you know, for another candidate to get through, I'm just very aware I don't know anything like enough about the Uxbridge Liberal Democrats or the Uxbridge Greens, but they would all they would certainly have to be a Remainer. Yeah. Labour are the second place party, so yeah. they would have to be a a Labour candidate for the Labour Party not to be like, okay, yeah, sure, we'll stand down in favour of a another. So what we really are in practice talking about is a Labour candidate on an explicit platform of remaining in the EU. Yeah, enough of a Remain platform to, yeah. to for the Lib Dems and the Greens and whatever other smaller parties are around there to stand aside to to campaign and support the Labour candidate. Yeah. So I do think that that tactic is not the kind of tactic that will work in a place like Uxbridge and South Ryslip. This is an outer London, northwest London, traditionally Tory suburb in a borough which voted narrowly but voted for Brexit, where it's now in sort of Tory Labour marginal territory. So Boris Johnson has 5,034 majority, I think. So that kind of political landscape is not one where, where you're going to get a huge groundswell of support off the back of campaigning for Remain. That is not the, the issue in that seat. And, you know, I'm sure that, that that it would mean Labour could pick up a lot more votes from the sort of, there's a student population there because of Brunel University. So I'm sure that it would give Labour more of a chance. And it is, you know, the majority is quite slim. And there are people in the Labour Party who believe that they could win the seat, or at least they did a few months ago before Boris Johnson became Prime Minister. Because the fear now is that, of course, the Conservative Party would put as many resources as as they liked into that seat to make sure that their leader wasn't scalped, so to speak. So that there are people who think that they could win. So it could put them, you know, it could put Boris in a little bit more danger. But I don't think that that kind of strategy in a place like Uxbridge would work. Labour's biggest chance in that in that seat is running a campaign less about trying to unseat this right wing no deal Brexiteer prime minister and more about the local issues because the Conservatives have run that seat, you know for decades and some of the biggest problems in that seat are housing south hillingdon hospital is one was one of the lowest ranked i think for its a and e and there are some really big social issues there so if labor can run on those local issues they probably got more of a chance of picking up votes than making it about brexit yeah i also think and i i have much less i.e none direct experience of, of of walking around the constituency and I think it's actually a problem in general with electoral packs, right? People kind of forget that actually they are they are almost always less than the sum of their parts. Mm. Because, you know, like, 
people do understand how first past the post works, right? Those so some of those people voting green will will come over, but some of them don't want to vote for the Labour Party. Yeah. So, just as like you know, two, twenty thousand people, however many it was, who voted Labour last time, you know, didn't slip and actually want to vote for the Greens, right? You kind of lose votes by. But also, my instinct is that if Johnson were to lose that seat, it would be if you ended up with a pattern of voter shifting a bit like the one we saw in Kensington. Mm. Labour vote went up, not by enough to have overhauled Victoria Boric's 2015 vote share. The problem that Boric, Boric had is that she lost votes to the Liberal Democrats and to the Labour Party. And I don't believe, and actually Kensington is a constituency I did go to at the last election, mm. and I do have a better feel of, of, of why it was I don't believe for a moment that the Conservatives who switched to the Liberal Democrats in 2017 in that seat would have done so to switch directly for, a Labour, for, for the Labour Party. Yeah. M- many of them wanted to send a message about that campaign. They were deeply unhappy about how it handled, and, and about the fact that some of them did feel that Victoria Boric had... Yeah, one of them said to me that she had rubbed their faces in the fact that she was a Labour. And so some of them knew that by doing so they were increasing the chances of a Labour gain. Mm. But they weren't ever going to actively take the step of voting Labour themselves. And I and I think that's kind of the issue with direct pacts. Then people kind of think like, oh, right, we've got these blocks and we can just move them around. And it's just like, that's not quite how it works. Yeah, I agree with that. And also, if you're someone in that seat like Uxbridge voting Lib Dem or Green, you're not a tactical voter, are you? Yeah. Because you're never going to get a Lib Dem or Green MP there. You're voting out of your principle and your enthusiasm for that particular party. So if there's a pact, who's who's to say that you'll then transfer your vote to the Labour candidate? Yeah. It's quite entitled to think that people will, will work in that way. Obviously, Boris Johnson, we've spoken about this before on the podcast, he is a galvanising force, or he could be, for his opponents. So maybe that, you know, maybe it would be an interesting to test to see how how far he can, he can galvanise his opponents for voting for a, a party that they may not find particularly tasteful but they know is the strongest opposition towards someone like him yeah and i think in terms of the like follow-up of what would happen then if you know he's won but he is not himself an mp anymore <sighs> i mean, with the proviso that i just can't ever make the maths for it work i can i can i can make the maths for boris losing his seat work mm. i just can't really make it work for him to have lost his seat but for I just think at the point that they've lost Uxbridge, then it's like, well, good night, Mark Field. Good night, <laughs> Justine Greening. Good night, it's Ben Bradley. Blast. You know, it's just like at that point, it's like, well, they're not going to be in office anymore. So I, I just think it doesn't arise. What would happen in that situation? Well, I kind of guess it depends how well that lead, the leader is judged to have done in the course of that campaign if they are seen to have directly won it then you know of course a by-election is found if Mm. they are kind of seen to a bit of a you know a bit of a liability right like let's say that the liberal democrats last time had somehow despite the tim farron stuff surged and got a hundred seats but tim farron himself had lost westmoreland and uh, i don't think then there would have been this great clamor in the liberal democrat party of actually the guy who for all he's the architect of this policy nearly ruined our campaign because of his inability to answer these questions about homosexuality and reproductive rights. Yeah. I just don't buy for a moment that they would have gone, oh, well, we must find some way back for Tim. No, and I don't think, as you say, in this case, if Boris Johnson lost his seat in the general election, I don't think that he would be... (laughs) I don't think the Conservatives would be in power, so I don't think that he would be someone who they were desperate to find a seat for in that 
in that scenario. Well, you know, one of the, the, the things that the Conservatives are worried about in that seat is the changing demographics. So there's more younger people moving, moving there. There are a lot of seats like that where the demographics changing. If the demographic has changed fast enough for Labour to win because of that, that means they're going to lose, a, like you say, a hell of a lot more seats where that where that change is slowly happening. So there's no way that they would be forming a government in that scenario, I don't think. Yeah. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleague, Stephen Bush. The New Statesman podcast is recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. And our music is Devil by the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.